Amen. Well, I'm going to continue our series on highly flammable church, which is looking through the book of Acts. And in the book of Acts, we are looking at chapter 13 this morning. I'm not going to unfold loads of verses. I'm just going to bring three verses to us this morning from the very beginning of this book of uh, chapter 13. And it says this. Now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manain, a close friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And as they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, after they had fasted, prayed, and laid hands on them, they sent them off. Names, places, and activities. Let's look at them a little bit further. First of all, what is the church of Antioch? It's mentioned a few times. We see a wonderful move of God that sort of happens in Antioch. Lots of people get saved. Barnabas is used by God to see something fresh happen in that place. But um, where is Antioch? Well, Antioch is um, in Syria, near the border of Turkey. And it became a hotbed for church, almost like a, a new type of headquarters. Not quite a headquarters, but it was, it was a place that was quite significant. A lot of people looked to it. A lot of people were sourced from it. A lot of people were sent from it. And particularly when the persecution came in Jerusalem and the believers were scattered, Antioch became this place that many of those scattered believers went to. And there was something really special of the Lord that was happening there. I guess in today's world, it would probably be a place that would have lots of live stream views. It would probably be a place that the airport has got Christians landing regularly to see what's going on. Probably the pastors would be book writers. Probably there will be people that will be inviting leaders to come and speak at their conferences. It really was a place that people looked to and thought, there's something very special that's going on here. The city was a similar size to Exeter, actually. Not quite sure of the exact amount, but somewhere between 100,000 and 300,000 in population and, and a mix of cultures. Uh, there was a lot of, in the Roman world, there was a lot of transience, there was a lot of moving around. And so there was quite a mix. There were Jews and there were Gentiles. There was quite a mix of cultures in this place. It was also, how many of you are Christians here today? Just, uh, you don't have to put your hand, oh, you've done it too late, you've done it. Okay, um, just realized I wasn't very sensitive. If you're here this morning, you don't know Jesus, and I've just asked you to keep your hands down. Sorry, that's not our value. We want everybody to feel really welcome and included. And I was going to ask you to raise your hands, and then I realized as I was saying it, that wasn't a good idea. So I said, don't do it, but it was too late. I'm letting you into some of the thought process of a preacher. You know, the amount of messages that go through our mind as we're talking and thinking. But it was the first place where that terminology, Christian, was used. Antioch. Up until that, they were known as followers of the way. Other expressions would have been used, but they were first called Christians. So the, the, the label that we wear finds its identity from this church thousands of years ago. So that's a little introduction to the church of Antioch. Let's look at some of the people involved. Barnabas. It's a great name. It makes me smile, but I don't know if you've got any Barnabas here this morning, but I love the name Barnabas. Um, 
Barnabas was from the Mediterranean island of Cyprus. What a lovely place. I've never been there, but it's warm. It's beautiful. I imagine it's got lovely beaches. And that's where he was from. But Barnabas probably first heard the gospel visiting Jerusalem, maybe for a Pentecost festival, and gave his life to Jesus and became a real key player in much of what we read in Acts about the early church. But did you know Barnabas wasn't his name? His real name was Joseph. Now, Joseph's a good name. Uh, in fact, if you got the same name as the, as the father or the, the one who was the earthly father of Jesus, um, you wouldn't want to shift that name very much, would you? You know, particularly in credibility of the early church. Joseph, ah, you got the same name as Jesus' dad. Yes, that's a great thing. So why is he known, not as Joseph, but as Barnabas? Well, there's a really simple reason. Barnabas means son of encouragement. And Barnabas or Joseph's life was so framed and perceived by the way that he interacted with other people that they gave him the name Encourager. I wonder if people wanted to change your name to the characteristics they see in your life. I wonder what they would call you. I wonder what name I would get if Mark wasn't what I was known by, but it was what I did or how I interacted or how people perceived me. Would it be sad? Would it be critical? Would it be prayerful? Would it be spirit-led? What are the names that people might choose to allocate to our life? I love that they called him Barnabas. What would you like to be called? What's the meaning that you would like a new name to represent for your life? What would you like to be known for? And I love that there's something we see in Barnabas' life here where they gave him this beautiful nickname, so much so that this nickname became the name that we now know him largely thousands of years later. We read also about Barnabas back in Acts 4. He sold some land and he brought the proceeds to the apostles' feet. This wasn't just a a nice background encourager. This was a man who was fully in to the things of God. It demanded his life, his soul, his all, his land, his possessions, his heart, his name. Everything changed about him. And I love that about Barnabas. But let's look at some other. Simeon. Simeon was a really popular Jewish name at the time. And uh, so much so that Luke, try, Luke, the writer of Acts, tries to give us a little bit more of a clue to try to help the readers of the day work out who, which Simeon this was, because they would have known many of them. And so he said, Simeon Niger. Now it's unsure whether that's his surname or a nickname, but it identifies something probably about his origins. He was probably from North Africa. 
Maybe even Niger was a, a, a well, it was a well-known name, it was a well-established sort of name in society, and it often represented skin that was darker. And I love that even in the early foundations of the church, even at the time when the church is beginning to navigate itself between Jew and Gentile, that it's multicultural. It's, it's a gathering of nations, it's a gathering of backgrounds. I love that the gospel flattens everything. I love that in, even in a world that has so many measures of successful and unsuccessful, rich and poor, male and female, black and white, I love that the gospel says we are one in Christ Jesus. And it's one of the beautiful things I believe about us here in Rediscover, that we are gathered from many nations. And we must do our utmost to not just, because the world's view of tolerating difference is not God's view. God says we celebrate difference. We celebrate the cultures. We celebrate the mix that we are. And I love that we see that right in the start of the church. There's rich diversity. And then Lucius, probably one of the most common Roman names that you could find at the time. When I was in school, there were six marks in my class. <laughs> and it was obviously a popular name. But Lucius was probably one of those popular names of his day in Roman society. He was probably a leading Sir Syrian Jewish founder of the Antioch church. And then we read this name that maybe you've not seen before, Mannion. And it says that there was some connection with Herod Antipas. There are a number of Herods we read in the New Testament. Again, Herod was quite a popular name, but this means that Manning probably grew up as a childhood friend at the same time as Herod, Antipas. And he was probably from the aristocracy. And because he grew up with him, from what we read in the Greek text, that this man was probably in his mid-60s. I, I love that this wasn't a group of just young people, enthusiastic counter-message, but this was a mix of ages. It was a mix of cultures, it was a mix of ages, and they were all present in this church in Antioch. And then we have a man that much of the rest of Acts is going to be about, Saul, who became known as Paul. Paul, sometimes there are moments in the scriptures where names are changed because there's an encounter. You know, Abraham became Abraham. Uh, we, we read these moments where there, there's, you know, name changes that God gives to people to mark something. And some people say, well, Saul changed to Paul on the road to Damascus, but we don't read that in the text. In fact, he's still called Saul in this, and it's a few verses later where we suddenly get the name Paul. And it's interesting. I don't think his name was changed by God because it was representative of a new meaning or a new identity over his life. His name changed because Paul was a greater understood name in the Greek world. I believe his name changed because he knew that he wanted to relate to people better where they were at. You know, sometimes some of you have moved here from other nations and, and I meet you and say, hi, what's your name? You say, my name's Harold. And you say, oh, okay, hello, Harold. Um, is that the name you were given at birth? And uh, they say, no. And I say, well, could you pronounce your name that you were given at birth? I'd love to call you your proper birth name. And then they pronounce the name and I say, I think I'll call you Harold. 
And there's that. You've been so kind. You know, it's the same that growing up in Wales, I can roll my R's and and do flanechly. You can't do that if you didn't grow up in Wales. You can try, but you sound like you're about to spit. And there was an attempt here in Saul's life to relate to the world that God was calling him. And I love that later on we read him saying, I, I, I'm prepared to be all things to all men in order to let the gospel advance. Sometimes we get so principled, we get, no, no, my name's Saul, and no, no, I'm not going to change. But actually, God does call us to do everything we can to build bridges with the world. To be in it, not of it, but to build bridges so that hope can travel across those bridges from our life. And that's a key part of this story, this account, because they were about to be commissioned to be that extension of that bridge to the wider world. The first half of Acts, the book of Acts, focuses really more on encounter and calling. The second half concentrates more on mission and being sent. Now, the church that only focuses on encounter and calling is an unbalanced church. Now, I love encounter. I think church is obsessed with encounter. And I look back over my life and I see many moments of encounter that I'm so deeply grateful to the Lord for. They've shaped me and formed me. But I sense that there's a grief in the heart of God that his church have got stuck in the first half of Acts. We're stuck at the place of encounter. Some of the encounters in my life, I remember when I was eight years of age going to a a youth camp in the Forest of Dean and there were young people from all over the country gathered and every night we used to gather on a campfire and someone would share from the Bible, someone would share about the, the, the life of Jesus that he invites us into and they would always give a, an opportunity for people to respond. And I remember around that campfire as an eight-year-old deciding that I wanted to follow Jesus. And I remember waking up the next morning in my tent just sensing something had changed. I remember when I was 15 years of age, managing to get permission to attend a Christian young adults event that was really for 18 to 30 year olds, but my friends were older than me, they were able to go because they fit in that age demographic. I wasn't really old enough to go, but I knew the person who was running the event, so I asked for permission to go with my friends, and he said these words to me, he said, just make yourself, don't make yourself too obvious. Not quite sure what that meant, but... I tried to fulfill what he said and sat on the back row on the first night. A couple of hundred people gathered in this, in this service. And there was a guest speaker that night on the opening night of that event. And that guest speaker used to be the pastor of Riverside Church in Exeter. His name's John Parton. I bumped into him in a shop the other week. And I reminded him of this story. And every time I remind him of it, he always forgets. I'll probably meet him for a coffee in a couple of weeks' time and I'll say, that story, what story are you talking about? He always seems to forget. But for me, it was one of the most life-changing moments because he gets up to speak and the first thing he does is he stands with his microphone, he looks around the group and he points at me at the back and he says, that guy at the back, will you come to the front? And I'm thinking the owner hasn't, or the person running this event hasn't told him that he's given me permission to be here and he's going to evict me for being too young. So... I did what 
many of us have learned as a tactic in those sort of moments, I bowed my head <laughs> and pretended that I did not know it was me he was pointing to. And then he said, that young man has just bowed his head. <laughs> Will you come to the front? So I was like, God, you know, I really wanted to meet you this week, but I'm now going to be publicly humiliated in front of everybody, told that I need to leave. And then so I came to the front quite reluctantly, if I'm honest. And um, I stood next to him, and his first words to me were, nice aftershave, but you're not even shaving yet. Okay, I'm going to be evicted and humiliated all in the same moment. And then he put his hand upon me and began to prophesy over my life. And I can honestly look back at that as one of the most defining moments of my Christian journey. Because at that moment, all my desires for other things of the world, I had a career plan. I was pretty good in school. I did pretty well. I had a plan for university. I was planning what that career would look like. And at that, next, at that moment and the next day, I didn't care about any of that stuff. I just wanted to serve Jesus. I didn't know what that would look like. I wanted to serve Jesus with all my heart. Encounters are rich and they're beautiful and they're wonderful. I remember another occasion. Some of you have been here for a while. You've heard some of these stories. But I remember going to see John Wimber and Kansas City Prophets at an event they were running in Cardiff. And... I remember John Wimber saying, I'd like everybody under the age of 20 to come to the front, 21 to come to the front. And so I went to the front and he didn't touch us, didn't pray for us, but he just said, Lord, would you reveal your heart to them? And at that moment, I, I just, the intensity of the revelation of God's heart, I was in pain. I buckled over. No one was touching me. No one was near me. It was the power of the Holy Spirit revealing something of the heart of God in my life. And I just wept uncontrollably. I was in such agony because as well as the love of God, I felt safe, but as well as the love of God, I felt his intense pain for this world. I felt his burden that he carried. And it felt like it went on for ages. I don't know how long it was. I wasn't looking at my watch. I had other things I was doing at that moment. But I remember hearing John Wimber say the words, now, Lord, would you lift it? Because it's too much for them to carry. And it just lifted. And it, the, the moment that he said that, it just lifted. And it was similar in speed to the way that it came. But I never forgot that. I never forgot that pain and that moment. And God, you've privileged us to share your burden, to share in your heart. Help me, Lord. I love these encounters. And some of them come in the most innocuous of places. I remember sitting in an arena in the middle of Birmingham when I was pastoring in the center of Birmingham. And we went to watch a, an artist called Daniel Bedingfield. Some of you might remember some of his songs. He had some number one hits. Um, but his family grew up in YWAM. And he's a Christian. And I remember in the middle of this um, concert where there were thousands of people gathered and he was singing all these popular songs that he'd had in the charts. And then in the middle, he just started singing and walking around the crowd saying, Creating me a clean heart, oh God. And renew a right spirit within me. All these young girls going, Daniel, we love you. And he goes, cast me not away from your presence, oh God. And I'm in the middle of a secular environment in a concert, 
And at that moment, I believe God dropped the thought into my spirit. I believe he met with me at that moment. And it wasn't the song, it wasn't the environment, but I began to see God's heart for the thousands gathered. And I thought, if people will pay money to come and hear music, how much more should they be running to hear the gospel? And God dropped a question in my spirit. Do you think you can see a thousand young people saved in one day? I was like, yeah, of course, God, you could do anything. But when God asks a question, it's usually an invitation to partner with him. And the next two, three years were a pursuit of seeing that become a reality. And praise God, we saw that reality fulfilled. But the encounter came, not in the prayer closet, it came from an encounter. In, and I know you've had these experiences. You've been traveling to work and you've had Radio 1 on and somebody says something and suddenly their voices dissipate and the Spirit of the Lord captures something that someone who doesn't even know Jesus said and it hits your spirit. God is a God of encounter. His voice is everywhere. He's speaking. Some of you leading business. You're getting the voice of God lead you and guide you. He is a God who speaks. He is a God of encounter. He is a God who loves to meet with us, who loves to share with us. And if that can happen almost accidentally, imagine what could happen intentionally. You see, there are things I tell Nita that I tell no one else. Why? Because I'm closer to her than anyone. And the same is true with Jesus. There are things he's looking for people who will get close to him so that he can trust with his secrets. He's a God who speaks. He's a God of encounter. I've had encounters on car journeys, dog walks, church services, the lot. But there's a mobilization that God intends to come from these encounters. When God spoke and encountered Abraham, there was a, there was a walk of faith to come for his life, a way of working out those words. When God spoke to Jacob, there was a response for him to give. When God spoke to Moses at the bush, there was a response for Moses to live his life in light of that. When God spoke to Gideon, there was a response that was required. When God spoke to Ezekiel, there was a response that was required. When God spoke to Isaiah, there was a response that was required. God speaks, God meets, and then there is action. God transforms us so that we can be agents of transformation to this world. And I believe the heart of the Lord grieves because he keeps meeting his people. He keeps blessing his people. But we're not going. I hear people say that what the Western church needs is persecution. Persecution will mobilize us. Persecution will get us out of the buildings. Persecution will get us taking the gospel out. We look at other nations where persecution is real. I don't just mean someone, you know, gives you a tough time at work and calls you a Bible basher. I'm not talking, that's not persecution. That's banter. I'm, I'm not talking about that. And it might feel like it's hard for you, but it's not, your life is not under threat. We have brothers and sisters around the world that are giving their lives. They're not just under threat. Their lives are being taken because of faith. That's persecution. But I hear people say we need persecution in this nation if we're going to mobilize. I don't buy it. I believe it will mobilize the church. But I believe we don't need anything more than an instruction from Jesus. And we're not waiting for that. He's given that. Jesus, some of his final words, go into all the world and preach the gospel. 
I think basically those of us who say we need persecution in order to get us to go out, we're saying basically, God, you're going to have to force us out of our buildings. You're going to have to force us out of our comfort. You're going to have to force us out of our complacency. And God is looking for an alternative to being forced. He's looking for a church that will say yes. Here I am. I remember growing up in environments where there would be regular calls. If you want to give your life to Jesus, I don't mean salvation. If you want to give your life to the purposes of God, if you want to lay everything down, if you want to lay your ambitions, your careers, if you want to lay your comforts down, if you want to lay all those things and say, Lord, the most important thing in my life is responding to your call upon my life. And we see these commissioned here, hands were laid upon them. They were stirred, they were sent, they were provoked, they were anointed, they were released, and they went. And I believe, when I look around this beautiful church, and I see people, you've got story after story about God's encounter in your life. You've got story after story about God's grace and provision for you. I believe God is saying to his people, let's go. Let's go. Let me can we ask us, just to close our eyes as we finish our time together. We don't have the team or the logistics in this first service to call you forward to lay your life down for the gospel. But that would just be an expression of a heart decision. But I am going to ask you, would you set your heart, not just to desire more of God, but desire to serve him more? Thank you for Barnabas and Paul, Lord. Thank you that the legacy of their story is not some verses in this living book, your word, although we're thankful for all those things, but the, the legacy is that the gospel began to fan out across the world. And today we are recipients of that foundation. And I wonder... Lord, how many people in years to come, maybe even beyond our time, I wonder how many will recognize that the legacy of our lives is that we shared you with others. This world is so seductive. The comforts, the cares, the crisis, the culture. It all seems to conspire against us to sedate our hearts and to keep us living in the status quo and just occasionally encountering you afresh and then carrying on. And I pray, Heavenly Father, that you will stir our hearts to follow you.